Hi there, and welcome to the podcast episode of the television show Stargate SG-1. For the channel, let's review with Layla and you. For additional content on the other review episodes published by this account on a variety of subjects, come visit us in the RSS community where you can find us under the name Let's Review with Layla and You. You can also find us on Instagram under the same name. Here you can find more additional in-depth content, including with every episode and upload of promotional posts accompanying every podcast episode, as well as provide us a place vacation and where we can share and exchange ideas, thoughts, and whatever else you like to share concerning this whole adventure that we're setting out on together. So come meet up with me, myself, and I, and I would love to hear what y'all think. Hope to see you there. back for the review of another Stargate SG-1 episode. Today we'll be reviewing the 10th episode of the first season, named Thor's Hammer. The original air date was September 26, 1997. The episode was written by Catherine Powers and directed by Brad Turner. As the title of the episode already implies, we are going to be meeting the Asgard. Sorta. We're again expanding the pantheon of gods. We've had the ancient Egyptian god, we've had the Greek pantheon, and now we are going a little more north to the Vikings. Plus, there's not only a wink to Star Wars, we're also borrowing a few characters from Star Wars. See if you can spot them. As for always, the episode starts off with an MGM line roaring. After which we enter the Stargate Command, where General George Hammond is meeting with the team. With some well-placed camera work and some spot-on non-verbal communication by the actors, not to mention the editing job, we're not only learning about the possible origins of the Stargate and other alien races, benevolent gods, that could become our allies. Also, pretty much where every single person on the team stands regarding that. Which just goes to show how very telling nonverbal communication is, as well as the importance of a good editing job. Those two combined can tell a great story without a single word being uttered. As Daniel explains it, myths, religions, legends on Earth usually could be divided into two separate categories. You either had the tyrants or the culture bearers. I think we can all agree that the Go'ulds fall under that first category. Maybe as the Go'ulds turned out to be real, it stands to reason that maybe the good gods are all real and also visited Earth. Maybe those gods are still out there as well, to become our allies in the fight against the Go'ulds. In addition, he throws in another whopper of a theory. As the Go'uld are parasitic by nature, they most likely did not build the Stargate system, and thus were also not the only ones utilizing it to visit Earth. Zazzy is holding a delightfully adorable presentation about the Vikings, in particular Thor, which, considering that the episode is called Thor's Hammer, understandable, but there's a whole pantheon of gods there, Bubba. Not to mention that the Vikings weren't the only one with benevolent god, but for the good of this story, it makes sense that they zero in on Thor. Plus, so far, the ancient Egyptian and the Greek gods turned out to be ghouls, despite having benevolent gods in their pantheon. We gotta start somewhere. In the face of all this sharing, particularly General Hammond and Colonel O'Neill are the skeptical ones, Carter seems slightly intrigued, and Tilk seems to be caught in between the two. It's quite beautiful to realize that in just 10 episodes of this show, we've not only learned that the gate goes many a places in our galaxy, possibly universe, but also that the Go'ulds might not be the gate builders to begin with. It is only the 10th episode and already with this narrative, they open up 
a world, a franchise that is good for TV for the next 15 plus years. So bless them truly for having vision. And like, I can only admire the writing, the actors portrayal. Again, with so little time, they can show us where their characters are mentally, emotionally, physically, canonically. Just you gotta love it. I love it. That's why I'm doing this. I'm hoping y'all gonna join me. Make it a big old love fest. After Daniel has so passionately made his case about trying to seek out potential Viking gods somewhere, here comes Tilk, out of left field, yet again, with a story that apparently all Jaffa are taught, and conveniently are also taught a particular Stargate address, to avoid at all costs. But it's fiction, so we'll take it. Which kind of makes you wonder. Tilk knows that this planet is so dangerous to the Gould that they are forbidden to go there to the point that they teach every single Jaffa the sequence to the planet, but he just moseys along. Was no one even slightly concerned something might happen to him? I mean, is everyone forgetting he's carrying one around in his gut? Especially, you know, considering what happens next? Or is it because we know what happens next that we think maybe he should have sat this one out? But then again, we wouldn't have this amazing episode, so alright then. As the team is about to embark on their mission, and hey, there's Fred again. Hi, Fred. They are handed a box from the Sagan Institute, a nod to Carl Sagan, who is a famous American astronomer. His institute was founded to find life in our universe, so it does have a clear link to what they are trying to set out here in Stargate, trying to connect with alien life. Apparently, Daniel requested as a sort of, howdy, we're from Earth, to give to possible friendly aliens. Actually, quite smart, although if it falls into the hands of the wrong kinds of aliens, yeah, maybe not such a smart idea. I mean, you're basically telling complete strangers exactly where you live. But it's a nice gesture, I like it. And I gotta say, I do love the design. The first symbol, and then the basic makeup of a man, a woman, and two children. Depending on how you look at it, I guess it could also be seen as leaning heavily into that whole male versus female binary narrative. I looked at it as in, we have this end of the spectrum, and we have that end of the spectrum, and everything in between. And these are our mini-me's. But again, I think in how you see a design or a scene such as those really reflects your own perspective and or biases. So I wonder how y'all interpreted that. How do y'all feel about the design of this box? Do we have one for real? I mean, if the Carl Sagan Institute is out there looking for alien life to introduce to us, boy, I can only imagine that such a box should exist somewhere. Like a readings from Earth box needs to exist. Or don't you agree? Also, how would you design it? What would you put in it? Please let me know. I wonder. So according to Daniel, there is stuff in there about cultures and history of our planet. And again, that choice kind of makes you wonder, is that smart? And I mean, hey, I'm all for authenticity and taking responsibility and accountability and all that jazz, but considering our history and all the whitewashing that has been going on, it really makes me wonder exactly whose version of history did you put in there? Like, how encompassing. Like, you don't want to flat out lie, but you do kind of want to make a good first impression. Considering our history, that might pose a bit of a challenge. Just these last few years, we have been introduced to, or reintroduced to, I should say, some doozies. I mean, I haven't seen Oppenheimer, but after it came out, I was shocked, though sadly not all that surprised, how whitewashed the story was, that they omitted a very large part 
of what happened there, particularly to the residents that they pretty much bulldozed and then poisoned with their nuclear experiments. Apparently that part of our history is still being whitewashed. And when I read that, I was like, okay, I'm not going to be watching this movie anytime soon, especially not in the theaters. I'm sorry, but in today's day and age, you need to tell the story, the whole story. You need to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, because too much whitewashing has been done and just seeing how ill-educated we've become by all that whitewashing in our history lessons. We're repeating history and we continue to repeat our history until we fucking learn from it. So if you've seen that movie and you know what I'm talking about, please do share how you interpreted that giant omission. If you've seen that movie and you have no fucking clue what I'm talking about, Google it and then take a minute because it was a whopper. There are people still alive who know what happened there, who live every single day with what happened there. And that wasn't even mentioned in the movie. It again was the tortured white person, apparently, that took Primo stage. And as a white person, I'm so sorry. There has been more than enough of that. We need to stop colonizing the screen as Taika Waititi so beautifully phrased it. White people need to sit down and shut up. Uplift. Highlight those voices that have been ignored and whitewashed for all those years. And as a white person that is not shutting up and actually learning to use my voice and try to use it to uplift pretty much anyone and everyone that gets stomped on by ableism and under that umbrella, I see racism, fascism, all the isms, pretty much. Because ableism creates a duality. And as long as that is in somewhat equal measure, okay, but usually it means something is considered more, better, superior to, so it's used negatively. So ever since then, I am very pro talking about all the ableist shit that we are exposed to, that we fall victim to, not to necessarily shame people or cancel people. I'm not of that trend at all. If anything, it annoys me. As I'm all for accountability and transparency and holding people accountable for their actions, also leave room for the person to grow, to redeem themselves, to learn that there's another way. And with the whole cancel culture trend, that one is missed out on. And as a result, it seems that they want to shut the door on any true awakening, turning it into a wokeism. See, another ism. Because it leads to the extreme of someone being shunned, being ousted, being flat out rejected, canceled. That's what I mean when I say that for me, the root of all evil is seated in ableism. As soon as you consider yourself more than, actively try to restrict access to information and resources, you're already on thin ice. Because leaning into our own and each other's strengths and work together, you uplift everyone. Everyone. And yet, somehow, we've gotten to the point where it's twisted that somehow it became bad. The problem that I personally have with it is the extremes. That becomes very black and white. It's either you're a good person or you're bad. No. Yin-yang, black and white. We all have that inside of us. But it is what you do with it. Use it to grow as a person. Don't use it to slam the door and just say, I need you to shut up and go away. Because enough is enough. We need to learn. We need to allow ourselves and others to learn from our mistakes, from our ancestors' mistakes, or we are doomed to repeat it. And again, I know I'm still ignorant on a lot of it, but the things I have learned these past few years horrify me, especially seeing how little is known by the public. We need to do the work. We need to know the whole truth, because only then can we understand our world and also to become a better person and to make this world a better place. Because right now, again, as 
much as I'm also afraid the Terminator is going to be reality at some point with all the AI drama going on, I think if you start telling very advanced aliens about what we've been up to these past few decades, thousand years, millennia, I'm actually not quite sure what they'll be doing. If they're going to be coming to help us or if they're going to be coming to wipe us out. Just hit that reset button. And actually, I can't really blame them. I myself don't see. Well, I see a way out. Just not in my lifetime. Not anywhere near my lifetime. There's only so much you can do. You try. I will continue to try to my dying breath. Be that sooner or later. But now we're getting way off track. We were reviewing Stargate. Lordy. See, this is what these kinds of episodes, these kinds of topics... It goes deep. So very deep. And that's kind of also why I now want to take the time to, even though we're reviewing an episode of a fictional TV show, to take the time to talk about this. And first I tried to split it into these reviewing episodes and let's review with Layla 2023. But that just became too much work because I started that three months in. Plus, it has not exactly been a very happy year for me. A lot of breaking down to the studs and then some. Hopefully to finally lay to rest the things that have been holding me back for all these years. Preventing me from stepping into my power, from utilizing my voice, from owning my space. Claiming my space. Because a person that loves harmony, such as myself, internally always screaming, Why can't we all just get along? I became a people pleaser to the point that it nearly destroyed me. Some might say it actually did destroy me. <laughs> but luckily, I'm like a phoenix. I rise from the ashes. Sort of working on it. But this is now why. Why I want to use my voice to help and uplift and highlight the voices that were ignored are shoved aside. Because that has been going on for far too long. And it is just to the detriment of all. And if we, if we are to salvage, let alone save our species, I think we need to dive deep. We need to capitalize on this age of Aquarius time that we're living in and look at the hard truth, look at ourselves, deal with some hard truths, lean into our strengths, identify our weaknesses, and learn how to appreciate each other and work together to uplift every single one of us. Turn that into our strength, that we are able to do anything and everything. Because we're a very capable species, I gotta say. It's just where do we put our focus? And right now, the focus is very much on restricting and a lot less on sharing, healing, growing. And I really hope we start remembering that again soon. For now, let's get back to the episode. Enough of this deep soul touching, hopefully with consent. Unfortunately, we never do actually learn what was in that box. Okay, spoiler. We will be revisiting this world, and then the box is mentioned again, but I think other than this particular episode, it is never talked about again, which is a shame because I really would have liked to know what they put in that box. Like, what's in the box? But unfortunately, we don't get to see that. Sorry, that's a very bad impression. I'm chock full of movie quotes. Honestly, I could, for every opportunity in life, there is either a song lyric or a movie quote. Some people quote scripture. I quote movies and song lyrics. Each their own, I suppose. And let's say that that was enough existential babble for right now. Let's get back to the episode. On arrival, the team is once again launched from the gate. I thought they fixed that. They, for the first time, experience quite a different kind of greeting. They are laughed at, which is delightfully refreshing, and I always love it. And suddenly, the obelisk opposite the gate starts to hum, and it starts to scan them. Before O'Neill has the chance to save Tilk from whatever that thing is doing to him, they are beamed away. And... The responses of Daniel and Carter, I found odd, considering what we already do know about them. Daniel immediately is very doomy and gloomy, like, oh my god, they're dead. Carter gets very angry, and 
that doesn't really let up throughout the episode. However, she does immediately goes into leadership mode with contact the SGC, get some help, start a search. However, they never, I don't think, actually do call home. Despite Carter's earlier intentions, again, it's a very standalone, we're going on an adventure episode. I mean, shouldn't they at the very least report it back to General Hammond that Tilk and Colonel O'Neill were beamed away, killed, who the fuck knows? But we never really find out because at that particular point in the episode, a woman comes riding up on a horse and introduces herself as Gerwin. And here's that little winky wink to Star Wars. Her first response to seeing them is, they are a little short for gods. And that could be a reference to Star Wars A New Hope, where Princess Leia said to Luke Skywalker, aren't you a little short for a Storm? Trooper. So that was one of the first really winky Star Wars in this particular episode. It's funny because, spoiler, their god, Thor, is actually a tiny dude. Which makes this quote extra extra funny in my opinion. Once again, kudos to the writers of Stargate SG-1. Aaron, for a minute, though unimpressed, clearly, is under the assumption that Daniel and Carter are from Asgard, so they are from Thrudvang, which I had to Google that one, is apparently, according to legend, the field where Thor resides. Once Garen realizes that they're human, she believes that they have tricked Gold into following them to this planet to get rid of them, and, you know, that would actually be very smart. Maybe we should try that in the future. But now we gather that we are both from Midgard, which is, according to Garen, their ancient home. Thor brought them to this planet from Earth and placed the hammer to keep them safe, which kind of compels me to say, Hi, Thor. Could you have, like, maybe placed that little fucker on planet Earth instead of abducting our ancestors and transplanting them on another planet and leaving us to fend for ourselves? Hmm? Gerwin goes on saying that Thor will come back to teach them about the workings of the hammer and their technology when they're older. And here we go back again to the young, old narrative that the Nox also adopted by calling us young. Still guessing it's a nicer way of saying that we're primitive. And I love it in this show that even though, oh yeah, we're very primitive or young, they do it in such a beautiful way with such kindness. I think similar to what we adults can have towards children when they're still learning. So even though it's, it's, you could see it as an insult, as in you're too stupid to understand. I mean, every kid hates to be told, you don't understand, you'll understand it when you're older. At least I did. I hate it when people told me that. I'm like, try me. It's unwise to hide shit from children and just say, like, you wouldn't understand. Then dumb it down to an age-appropriate level is always my advice. You're still sharing, you're still making them a part of it, acknowledging that something is happening, which is very important, but you're also trying to protect the still-developing mind. Also very important. Protect the kid from stuff that they should not worry about. I wish someone would have extended that courtesy in my childhood. But coming to an answer by yourself is so very important in comparison to just being shown the way. There we go again with my Star Wars reference. It's helpful to guide someone on their path, but if you go faster than they are able to comprehend, bad shit can happen, which is also covered in this show. So I really love in this show that they highlight both scenarios and that even though, yes, of course, no one likes to be told you're too young to understand, you should also sometimes be grateful. But overall, yeah, you don't like to hear that you're not old enough to understand, but at the same time, compared to what we learn is out there. Oh yeah, they really have a point. But again, they the writers did it in such a beautiful way. I really love how they focused on the positive. Yes, we're young, but we're learning. And at some point, even we flip it around a bit, which again, I love because it's such a two-way street. 
every single interaction you can learn from each other, no matter the hierarchy or the teacher, student, parent, child. As long as you're open to that, that even though you are smarter, more advanced, more developed, less primitive, you can still learn from each other. This narrative throughout this show I really, really love. And I think is one of the reasons why this show is so very, very good. It doesn't look away from the painful truths, but it also focuses on the positive and the willingness to learn, to be better, to do better. We've once again established that we're long-lost fam. We learn that among their community, there is a woman who came to their planet as a Goa old, and that after the hammer did its magic, she emerged as her old self again, which, of course, instantly piques Daniel's interest. Now, this is where it becomes unclear if they ever even contacted Stargate Command, because next we see that Daniel and Carter are going with Gerwin to meet this woman. But not before we check in on Tilk and O'Neill. And yes, thankfully, indeed, it turned out to be a transporter beam and it didn't actually kill them. As far as I'm aware, this is the first time that Colonel Jack O'Neill references Tilk's symbiote as Junior, which is funny for so many reasons. I mean, you've got the fact that it's sort of like a baby, but not really. You got the fact that it's a dude with a baby in his belly, which could be a nod to the movie Junior with a pregnant Arnold Schwarzenegger. If you don't know what I'm talking about, you should watch it. It's a fun movie. And even though we all are a little grossed out by symbiotes, it is part of Tilk. It keeps them alive, it keeps them healthy, so it's also a term of endearment. Soon after they arrived in what appears to be a cave, a hologram appears of Thor, and it's played by Mark Gibbon, who we will be seeing again in this franchise. I love that man. He has such a deep, powerful, mellifluous voice. You see him in the, the Viking garb, and he's holding a hammer, which we are supposed to, I think, assume that it's Mjolnir, which always makes me think of Mjolnir from the Marvel movie where Kat Dennings' character, Darcy, keeps calling his hammer Mjolnir. Still don't know if that was a goof or intended or because she couldn't pronounce it, but that part always makes me laugh. So I, I can say Mjolnir, evidently, but I just like Mjolnir a lot better. So therefore I always choose to say Mjolnir. What does that just mean? Is it like blasphemous to call it that? Oh, I hope not, because I also put it into my episode art on Instagram under Let's Review with Layla and you. Go check it out and tell me what you think. Soon after, it becomes clear that the hologram is basically just a recording on a loop, like a voicemail or a hologram message, I should say. And what we learn in this message is that Thor considers himself a supreme commander of the Asgard fleet, indicating that this indeed is a very powerful alien race, and that the Goa'uld system lords were informed they were not to come to this world. So apparently, the Asgard are aware of the Goa'uld, and the Goa'uld are aware of the Asgard, and they have some sort of treaty that keeps this planet safe. Again, why not Earth? <laughs> Apart from that, of course, this is important information because later on in the show, all of this becomes relevant. So, all that information away for another rainy day. What I love about this moment is that O'Neill's like, okay, we got the Asgardian voicemail, let's move on. But it's Tilk that stops O'Neill and says, let's listen to the entirety of the recording. That's more like something Daniel would say, but I love that Tilk is also like, no, wait, this is important information. And as it turns out, yeah, it really is. For they are told that if they go to the hall of Mjolnir and face the hammer, the host can survive. Not to mention that their weapons won't work here. 
Or do they? Which tells Tilk that yes, there is a way out for O'Neill. His presence in the team did not trap him there for eternity and get him killed, which he, I'm assuming, feels a little guilty about. But also that if he remains in the cave and doesn't leave, he will be safe. And of course, here you go again with the jackism with the Hall of Mohair. Again, I don't know if this was a Richard Dean Anderson or a writer thing, but golden! When they meet Kendra, she is using Go'ul technology. She's using it to heal a child who is terrified of her. Apparently, though she is cured from her Go'ul infestation, people are still scared shitless of her. But you quickly learn that even though she... Oh yeah, she's human. She is still an outcast because of her past, which is kind of sad. As is the fact, when I researched who she was, and if I knew her from anything else, I learned that she died early 2020 due to cancer. The young age of 15 a day before her 56th birthday. That she was quite a talented actor and dancer. When it comes to her character, Kendra, what I found interesting, and at a certain point it actually became a point of annoyance, how devoted she is to Thor, as in the religion of Thor. She adopted it to the extent that she seems to be the only one really talking about it. Like, Garwin talked about it as, yes, Thor is our benevolent god, and he cares for us and protects us and all fabulous and whatnot. Kendra is very much talking to the thunder or listening to the thunder or interpreting the thunder. Like, I remember that she annoyed me in this episode and I couldn't put my finger on why exactly. And then when I watched it again now, again, I became annoyed. And I think not because I don't like the actress or her performance per se, but the extent to which they really laid it on thick with the talking to the thunder and just after everything that she went through, she knows better than anyone how the Go'uld are just parasitical beings taking possession of humans who have dominated the galaxy with knowledge that they acquired along the way. That having clearly gone to the negotiating table with the Asgard once or twice, considering what Thor told us in his message, she would know the true Asgards, as we will maybe someday, hopefully, get to know them too. So her shtick quickly became annoying to me. Plus, I'm just the kind of person that don't like people who interpret signs as ubiquitous as thunder and can make decisions without it. That is the opposite of empowerment, and that usually triggers me as well. So maybe that's got a little something, something to do with it as well. No, that does not take away that I did not appreciate Carter's attitude towards her. Daniel was very considerate relating it to it's also most likely a trauma response, which, yeah, but that Carter remained so short-sighted, narrow-minded, angry even with Kendra, I thought was a shame and was a disservice to the character of Carter and also not entirely sure what the reasoning behind that characterization was. I did not like Carter in this episode and I usually really, really, really like Carter. So that was also a surprising thing about this episode for me. Luckily, it was just this episode. After that, she becomes our beloved Carter again. But I choose to see it as canonically, she thought she may have lost her beloved O'Neill, and that's why she's so crabby. But then again, that would be very unprofessional. So again, there's not really a reason that I can think of. Maybe y'all got some suggestions, by all means do share, on why she behaved this way and how you view that behavior. 
while we're at it, can someone please explain to me why they chose the greeting hail and welcome, which then got shortened to hail? I mean, really? Of all the greetings in the universe, that's the one you went with. Hmm. I have news. As do clearly Carter and Daniel as well, as they are at least somewhat uncomfortable saying it, which again, it's just body language, eye contact that gives you so much to work with. Next, we discover that Tilk and O'Neill are not alone in the cave. And this monster, for one, it was right across the pond from you. Really? You didn't notice? Like, Tilk has special spidey senses, and they did not go off at all in this moment, which I found interesting. Like, it, it gave us some suspense, I get it. Kinda lost some credibility for me, she says while talking about a very serious monster in fiction land. I know, but still. Especially what they come up with later, but we'll get to that now. I'm thinking the most important part of this scene is that we learned that many Goa'ulds have perished there, and they did not exactly die a natural death. Once our boys have entered the Hall of Mohair, we learn that apparently our weapons are considered, or earth weapons, I should say, are considered too primitive because indeed Tilk's staff weapon doesn't work anymore, but luckily O'Neill's guns still do work, which they demonstrate by shooting one of the lamps. I got to say, beautiful architecture, you're in the middle of a cave, and suddenly they enter the, well, the Hall of Mjolnir. Not a moment too soon. In the next scene, we finally see the monster in its full glory, and we learn that it's called an Unas, played by Vincent Hammond, and this is one of the characters that we borrow from our Star Wars franchise. The man that plays this character is, for one, very, very, very tall. The dude is like 6'8", and he plays a lot of very tall people on screen that we probably all have seen in something or other, as I learned that I remembered him oddly enough for he was on screen for not even a minute, but I still remember him as uh, the gurney guy in ER, where he portrayed trade a character that was high on PCP and was tied to a gurney, but because he was so tall, he just took that gurney for a walk, still tied to his back. I still remember that scene, and apparently that's this dude. The, just the description, the gurney guy, I immediately knew who it was. Despite ER being 331 episodes of 40 plus minutes of pop, that little character, or should I say big character, was really rather memorable. Evidently. And he is also the dude that has appeared in Star Trek. Oops, Daisy. Got my Star franchises confused. Although, fun, fun, fun fact the Unas' voice is voiced by James Earl Jones, who voiced Darth Vader. But he'll always be Mufasa to me. Me being, well, you know, me. I tried to research the Unas and maybe discover how the writers created this particular species, monster, and how it would relate to our Stargate franchise. And the something was that Unas, or Unis, or Weenus, yeah, that word only with a W. I understand why they go by Unas, apparently was a 5th dynasty Egyptian pharaoh who lived 4,343 years ago. Although there's unfortunately not a lot known about Pharaoh Unas, what he is best known for, he was the first pharaoh who started to inscribe the interior of his pyramid, FYI his pyramid is at Saqqara, with religious and magical texts known as the pyramid texts. These texts are the oldest religious writings known to mankind. This was adopted by his successors, so despite his obscurity, because, you know, with my fascination for ancient Egypt, I had never heard of him before, but it, clearly he had some legacy. 
yeah, I really, really like that they found a way to, again, incorporate something from the past. Although I'm very sorry for Pharaoh Unas that his legacy in the Stargate franchise became to be a very tall, very angry lizard person. It's a good character. It's a good monster. Love the actor that plays him because he's very imposing. I mean, Tilk is like a tall drink of a man. But then to see him in the shadow of Vincent Hammond's Unas, yeah. Our primitive earth weapons still do work, and with their combined effort, Tilk and O'Neill seem to be able to take the Unas down, who is, as it turns out, a tough fucker. Tilk confirms it is dead. However, after they depart, we see that its eyes glow. Da -da -da. Clearly, it's not over. Now it seems that Tilk is the jumpy one, mainly, I think, also due to the fact that he now saw a childhood nightmare come to life. As Tilk explains to O'Neill, the Unas was the ancestor or brother or distant cousin of the Go old as they were born from the same primordial waters and the Unas were known for their great regenerative powers which then allows for this funny little banter between O'Neill and Tilk that I always love. O'Neill just what that man can do with just parroting the same words but with this layer upon layer of like, how he makes that line come to life and just make it funny and at the same time add all the skepticism he can to the statement. I love that scene. Like even though they just pretty much faced Tilk's altered nightmare they are now discussing something that Tilk believed was a myth come to life, but now also still trying to convince himself that the regenerative powers of an Unas were exaggerated. And like, I love this little banter. And uh, again, for just like 10 seconds on screen, these actors with their portrayal, the utilization of their instrument themselves to bring these lines to life, I just love. This is what makes me love this show. Like, is despite it being a fictional television series where we're fighting giant lizard people and Tilk is a Jaffa with a gold symbiote in his gut. Betrayal is so, to me, human and relatable. It makes me truly love the show, the characters, and just the entire franchise. When Daniel and Carter discuss Kendra's trauma recovery, Daniel says that there are plenty of reasons why she might be a little apprehensive of returning to the place that reminds her of the worst time of her life. His reasoning for her zigzagging all over the mountain is sound, but again, just Carter's anger and inability to, in my opinion, show empathy or at the very least a basic understanding of where Kendra is coming from. Like, on the one hand, was it like that they don't want Carter as the only woman on the team to always be the one to be bonding with all all the women they come across off-world. But at the same time, again, it bothered me how angry and closed off Carter was Perhaps the betrayal for trauma and how you recover from trauma. I do like that they try to show some consideration for the unimaginable trauma that Kendra suffered. For that day and age, it was good, especially with today's day and age and all the trauma counseling and healing that we're experiencing, myself included, as now we start conversations about the uncomfortable things. We start breaking dysfunctional patterns, especially generational dysfunctional patterns, start healing from the traumas that were inflicted on us that we've experienced. Experience. I mean, we millennials alone. I mean, I was born mid-80s and I just realized that I have lived in five different decades, every single one of them with their own, shall we say, memorable events, two different centuries, two different millenniums, and I'm not even 40. And there have been some global, impactful events that changed our society to its core, and it's still doing that. That makes me feel so old and tired. <laughs> 
Just currently, I'm rewatching or watching Grey's Anatomy because there's some overlap with Station 19, a show that I also greatly like. And I just arrived into season 18, 19, which was recorded during the pandemic. And of course, in those episodes, they talk about all the things that happened during the pandemic. And I got emotional watching a particular episode. I'd already forgotten what we went through in just a few years. The amount of traumatizing images and upsetting news that we were exposed to and just the hits just kept on coming like there's only so much that your brain can comprehend and just to see it laid out like that like in that one particular year this and this and this and this and this happened i was shocked because in my brain it felt like that had been the past five years but no that happened in a single year so that just goes to show what your brain does even to a trauma as recent as a few years ago on the one hand it feels like a decade has passed but then you start to think back and you think no, it's only been three years. Huh. Oi. Back in the labyrinth, O'Neill and Tilk have now found the exit. Unfortunately, though, it seems that though O'Neill can, as the hologram message predicted, walk out, Tilk, however, cannot. With also the Unas again showing up, and O'Neill's unwillingness to leave Tilk behind, especially, you know, locked up in a labyrinth with the Unas without any functional weaponry, Tilk and O'Neill decide to try and kill the Unas, and, like, I can understand that Tilk is more powerful, as in he has more strength than O'Neill, so that's the reason why he's the one that shoves the Unas into the red beam. Thankfully, again, O'Neill saves Tilk, because it would be quite a shame if we went through all of this and now Tilk has to die. Honestly, don't hurt that primo shot of Tilk's buttocks, his gluteus maximus. Because not to objectify Christopher Judge, truly mean it as a compliment. Those glutes are Maximus. Like Maximus. He has a butt, girl. As in, I appreciate a firm, perky little butt. Or, you know, big butt. A cute tushy. What's a girl to say other than, I like big butts and I can and will testify. Again, I am moved by Tilk's supposed final stand. If I am to die, it'll be as a warrior facing my enemy. And like Tilk to me embodies an honorable warrior. In the Nox, he showed this when he stood firm against Apophis when the Nox thankfully rescued him. And now again, he is faced with his childhood nightmare come to life. But he still decides to face his nightmare head on and in doing so even tries to save O'Neill himself and anyone else who can ever get stuck in the labyrinth. But no, O'Neill saves him. Of course, everything as it happens in fiction comes together when at this exact moment, Carter, Daniel, and Kendra arrive on the other side of the labyrinth exit and they hear the gunfire, signaling that O'Neill and Tilk are in need of some help. Here again, we see a switcheroo with the headgear. They really do seem to have a hat for every occasion. Kendra suddenly knows the magical rhyme to open the door, which again far-fetched people. And she says that the rhyme was from a song that the people taught her. They are scared shitless of you, but you had time to pick up on some random rhyme that you now randomly figure could be your way to open the door. Okay. And is it just me, or does that rhyme make no sense? Carve the rune flow, read the might, see the rainbow, test the white. What does that relate to opening a door? But fuck it, it works, so god bless, I guess. Although I had to Google, like, what is the white? As in W-I-G-H-T. It's a mythical sentient being, often the undead, and with the unas and regenerative powers. Was that like an ironic little wink from the writers yet again? Because, yeah, can't miss the irony in that one. Although I wrote it to be a rhyme or a song created by 
and Sumerian people inspired by the Asgard. I don't assume that the Asgard put the Unas in the labyrinth as the monster to fight. I just think that he got trapped there and he just decided to feast on his fellow prisoners instead of, you know, going outside. Let the beam kill the gold inside of him. Tilg does say now after he shoved the Unas into the beam of light that without the healing powers of the gold, he will no longer regenerate. Though, how do you know that if you just 10 minutes ago did not believe in the fact that Unas was more than a myth? But let's go with you know what you're talking about. Of course, now we hit the little snag. Teal can't leave because if he does, the gold dies and the gold is his immune system. So without it, he dies. And then we have this moving moment where Daniel has vested his entire hope, understandably, on Thor's hammer, saving Sharae and, of course, Skara, which you gotta assume also has some emotional significance for O'Neill. O'Neill doesn't let that overtake his reasoning and says, Teal is here now and he is part of this family. Even though, and I find this again so beautiful, how self sacrifice sacrificing, redeeming Tilk's behavior again is. He is willing to stay in the labyrinth and now with Unas dead, he says he is not in any danger anymore, which I guess you could say is technically true. Yeah, I love this moment where O'Neill's like, fuck that shit, your family, you're coming with us. But I also like it that they leave the choice to Daniel. And you feel the heaviness of the decision when he walks outside with the staff weapon with a single shot, because apparently that's all it takes, disables the hammer. And Tilk can indeed, yay, walk through it. In handing Tilk back his staff weapon, Daniel lamentingly sighs, well, at least we know it can be done. And it's true. I think that is some nugget of hope that he can hang on to, that there is technology technology out there. There are, as he had hoped and predicted, benevolent gods, aliens posing as gods, who look kindly upon humans who are enemies of the gold out there, and that they have the technology to rescue and save Sharae and Skara. But all in all, I can imagine that it must have been very hard for him to do that. Although I'm very thankful that he did because we love Tilk. They decide to now seal up the cave, thinking that if a gold comes to the planet, gets beamed to the labyrinth, at least they can't leave even though the hammer now doesn't kill the gold anymore or keep him trapped. And they say that that way, even if the gold comes, Samaria will be safe. Which, at that time, I was like, yeah, seems solid. Although, later on, as they're about to leave, and Daniel finally seems to remember that they had a Sagan box for introduction, and he says, actually, it's for Thor. Although, Thor already took our ancestors and transplanted them onto Samaria, so you gotta at least somehow guess, no? That they know where we live and they know who we are. Again, very much depending on what they put inside of the box. So, uh, give them an update on how we're doing on planet earth and that we would like to be friends but yeah they dial home and watching it now i suddenly realized like okay the thor's hammer in the labyrinth is broken but we don't know if the thor's hammer at the gate is broken and tilk is now standing there and i know it didn't turn on the moment they stepped through the gate when they arrived on the planet but should we like hurry tilk through the gate before he gets beamed into the labyrinth again that was just the first time i realized that that as they are talking near the gate near the beaming hammer that yeah this is still not a, a safe place to be for Tilk but all in all of course it's we defeated the bad guy and we're going home so of course as usual it's a happy ending and we learned something again sorta but all in all I really like this episode because we got introduced to the Asgard and and learned there really are other aliens out there aliens that might become our allies one day I really loved just the moment that they arrived on the planet that they all started to laugh that is some that's quite a different reception than they've had so far where everyone's just bowing at their feet and kissing their hands and all that jazz and thinking that they're gods, you know. As, what was his face? For his ex-fiance showed that 
that can quite easily go to your head and cause all sorts of trouble. It also, again, strengthened and solidified the bonds between the SG-1 team members. I really like that too, apart from the very annoying and very closed off Carter in this episode, but for the sake of everything, let's just call that collateral damage. It wasn't as if Kendra wasn't also annoying me, but hey, that was for entirely different reasons. Let's assume. On to the next episode. In the next episode, we meet the TV version of Catherine Langford, the lady whose daddy found the Stargate in Giza back in, what was it, 1928? And who, as of yet in the TV show, we have not seen. So we're going to meet her again, and then again, we're going to learn a little about the history of the Stargate, because they found it in 1928, and all of a sudden we're in the mid-90s, before anything seems to happen with it. And we learn there may be something else has happened in the meantime. Maybe that wasn't the first time that they started to play with the gate. It's a good episode, and as the title in of itself says, into a great tragedy. I do hope to see you there.